I want to welcome you this morning. I have the opportunity to speak to you, God's Word, and I have a rare opportunity, and that is to ask you, if you don't have a Bible, you can take a pew Bible in the front and to turn to page one. In fact, as we discovered in the first service, it doesn't matter what version you have today, the page number is the same for everyone. Turn to page one. The only time we get to do this, of course, that is Genesis, the beginning and the famous verse there, Genesis 1-1. We really don't even hardly have to need to turn there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we're going to talk about Genesis today. We've been having a class uh, for the adults uh, in the first hour We've been talking about a lot of details. Today isn't a time to talk about details. It's not as easy in a setting like this. But we're going to take some bigger perspectives of Genesis and ask what God is saying to us. In order for us to hear Genesis, in order for us to understand what Genesis is saying, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the first Israelites who heard this story. We have to envision ourselves as a part of that great company who left Egypt. And if you would imagine that you're a little boy or a little girl and you're in that company and you have witnessed tremendous things, all the darkness and the flies and the river of blood and the frogs and, and awful things of fleeing in the night and the wailing of Egyptians with death, the thundering of hooves and the pounding of horses and the the creaking and the crashing of chariots as they chased you and began to pin you against the Red Sea and the certainty of your death except, lo and behold, Moses raises his staff and the hand of God parts the waters. You walk through, the waters come and subdue your enemies and you go to Mount Sinai. And he goes up to the mountain. He takes a long time. You wonder if he's ever coming back. But God speaks to Moses. And somewhere between that time and 40 years later, when on Mount Nebo, he looks out over all of the Jordan and the valley and what was the promised land. If you'd had an opportunity to go with us to Israel, you would have stood on that mountain and be able to see what he saw and, and turn around and see the wilderness behind. And my, it is a desolate place. And they wandered for 40 years. And on one of those two occasions, we know at the least that Deuteronomy was read at that time. But somewhere in that 40-year history, you would have no longer been a little boy or a little girl. But for the sake of imagination, you heard Moses. And he began to tell you a story, the story of beginnings, the story of your life and what's going on with what is happening with you. You would hear this story. He would have gathered together oral traditions, gathered together other printed materials, perhaps even had God himself speak on the mountain and put together what we have before us. Later, editors would add certain pieces as this was republished in David's time and then used even when they came back from captivity in Babylon. Republished during that time to say, here's what defines where we came from. And you and I have a similar need today. We have a similar need to understand where we come from. How did we get to where we are today? And Genesis tells us that story. 
Genesis tells us what's really going on. And so, wandering in the wilderness with an ear of 3,500 years ago, we need to listen to Genesis. 3,500 years ago. And so we ask them the first question, what is the purpose of Genesis? We want to know, if we were in that audience, we would have known what Moses was after. We would have shared culture with him. If he talked about being on I-5, we would know what that means. If he's talked about getting a cup of joe, we would know what that means. A future generation won't know what that means. There would be some here, though they're probably all at the uh, rafting trip, but, but they may not know about certain things. They may not know about D-Day. What does D-Day mean? If they've had history up to a certain point, there is a shared language that a culture has. In that time, you would have shared, shared that with Moses, and you would have understand he's talking about purpose. What is the purpose of Genesis? And I'd like to suggest that there's a few false steps. The first is this, Biography. There's a lot of stories of people's lives in Genesis, but I don't think it's fundamentally about biography. There's a, there's a lot of uh, creation stuff in Genesis, especially at the beginning, but I don't think it's really about cosmology. You and I are very interested in people's lives. We're interested in, in finding out how they live, but the truth is that the people in this book, in Genesis... There was some things for which you could model your life, but there's a lot of awful things as well. You don't really want to model your life after the patriarchs. Abraham had good things, but he had some really bad things, just like you and I. You see, it's not primarily a biography of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Neither is it really a textbook of any kind trying to tell you about how the world came to be. You and I, Helena, know exactly how do things work we live in an age in which we have undergone a scientific revolution and we have a lot of insight into mechanics. We understand a lot of things that happen in the realm that you don't even see. We know about protons and neutrons and electrons and we know that light is both a wave and a particle and we know that there are distant stars. We actually have to have the, the refresher knowledge that Pluto is no longer a planet. They've now discovered it has wonderful rings It's of its own. We've sent probes into the deep spaces. We've sent probes down into the minute microbes of life. The very fingerprints and the places where God goes. You and I have been able to live in a generation that doesn't have much fear over polio or the black plague. Because of the advent of technology... We have phones and cell phones and we can talk to one another and we're in different places. We can't beam me up quite yet, but we're getting there. They now speculate that they can transport at least electrons, I read recently. Very interesting. You and I have people who live in thin little boxes in our living rooms. They just live there. We live in a stunning world that we have learned much of the mechanics. But none of this, none of this was known by the ancient Israelites. None of it. Not a single piece of it. When it rained, the windows of heaven were open. But you and I think of high pressure system, low pressure system. And where are the mountains and coming from the oceans? We think of mechanics. 
The scriptures, Genesis, is not answering those questions. They never thought them. And if you were a part of that audience, in Moses' day, you never thought them either. Instead, the purpose of Genesis is revelation. It is revealing. It is revelation about who God is. Second point there, the problem. The problem was that the knowledge of God had been lost and distorted. The knowledge of God had been lost and distorted. The world at that time believed that there were thousands of God, all in competition with one another, fighting and warring. They were better than any of the soap operas you watch. They were better than Desperate Housewives and Grey's Anatomy put together. Their lives were muddled with warring factions and adulteries and children killing parents and parents killing children. And this is the world that the ancient Near East lived in. This is the world that created, this is how the world was created. The world was not then therefore a good place, but a place as a result of warfare and evil and strife. Mankind was not created according to Genesis as good and in the image of God. Rather, mankind was created as slaves to serve the needs of the gods. One story talks about the food. Because the gods are hungry, let's make mankind so that he would bring us all the food that we need. Another story talks about mankind making so much noise that the gods got irritated and decided to wipe them out with a big flood because they were bothering them and waking them up at night. You see, in the world of the ancient Near East and the Israelite world, the knowledge of God the Creator had been lost and distorted. When it rained, it was the gods opening up the windows. When there was lightning, it was the gods at war with one another. When disease struck your house, it was the gods bringing vengeance upon you. When a death took place, whether a car accident or of old age, it was the gods coming to bring death to your house. This is the world that they lived in and the knowledge of God had been lost and so God made a plan. He makes a covenant with Abraham, then known as Abram, and through him to the entire world. You, you and I sit here. You and I are able to sing the Revelation song, the end of the book story here, precisely because God made a covenant and a plan to reveal himself to Abram. And through him to the rest of the world. It was through Abraham that this covenant that had land and descendants and blessing works itself out in Genesis. Abraham is this emphasis of land. Jacob is his extended and large family. And Joseph is the blessing of God to save and preserve the world. A famine had come upon the world. You and I don't think about famines. They've had a seven-year drought in California, and the worst you've ever suffered is you've lacked a few filberts because they're more expensive now. You and I don't have famines here. They had a severe fear of a famine, that they would die. And so Joseph brings a blessing of God to feed the famined world, the world with no food. The purpose of Genesis then is to recover who God is. To recover who God is. Now, I want to read to you Deuteronomy 4. I've placed it on the screen because we, before we go to the next part, I want to read to you what was read 
40 years after they left Egypt, this was read to the people of God. For ask now the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown... That you might know, the word that you might know is purpose. That you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other besides him. And then verse 39, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. The fundamental key message of the entire New Testament, if there's one truth that God wanted to get through, and he did by prophet after prophet, book after book, king after king, seer after seer, was this, there is one God. There is one God. There are not multiple gods. There is one God. And so this book here, this Genesis book, is meant to reveal who God is. And I think we have to emphasize that because... I think that if we have a tendency, it is this, to do two things. One, to see all the stories of people and then to say, well, this book is really giving me a pattern. And no, it isn't. And the second is to see and hear the story of beginnings. And because we so much want to know how things were done at the beginning, that we begin to try to push into Genesis all of the technology that we understand the world, forgetting that they never would have thought a single thought like that. And in doing, here's the key point, we miss the purpose of Genesis. And in trying to transform it into something else, we miss the purpose of Genesis that God wants to reveal who he is. And so the second point is this, God wants us to know him. God wants us to know him. The book of Genesis is written because God wants us to know him. I was trying to, I was struck with that. Struck with meditating about that. And I was trying to think, how do I illustrate this? And the best I can get, the best I think we can get is if you envision yourself, not now as a little boy or a little girl, we'll set that aside and come back to it. But if you pretend for just a moment that you're an 85-year-old saint, you know that you are in the last years of your life. And you call your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and you think to yourself, I need to let them know about my life. The thought you have at 85, while if you'd had it at 25 would be vain, at 85 you realize I've lived some. I've got some good experiences. I've made my share of mistakes. I think I can be a help to my grandchildren and my children. My great-grandchildren. I think I can tell them about my life. They need to know about my life so that it would shape and guide and and influence and challenge them and help them. And so you call them and you say, I want you to know about me. Perhaps you write it down 
and you leave one of those wonderful documents that tells all the things and even your own kids will read it at your funeral. And they say, I didn't know some of this because your life is worth telling about at 85. But imagine, imagine the ancient of days. Imagine God himself. It is not a mere century of experience and wisdom that he's accumulated, but an infinite majesty of life and purpose and holiness and wisdom. And he says to the very ones, not just children of his, but actual his creations, the ones he brought with purpose and intentionality, the ones he formed and fashioned, the ones he planned from ancient days, he comes to you, he comes to Abraham, he comes through Moses and says, I want you to know me. I want you to know me. And that's a startling, stunning truth, really. God wants us to know him. And so the book of Genesis is divided into three, three things. And I want to just point your attention to them because they help us to get an overall perspective. The first 11 chapters show the need for an intervention. These are the crazy chapters. Not only is there creation, but... There seems to be angels, there's people living up to a thousand years, there's great floods, there's towers built up to heaven, there's mighty hunters, there's languages that are dispersed, there's a lot of things taking place, but there's one fundamental message, that the world's broken and getting worse all the time. There needs to be an intervention. There has been a wiping out of humanity and a starting over, and even then there's still... After that, the people have gathered together to build a tower to heaven and God comes and disperses language at Babel. Because the world is broken, there needs to be an intervention. There is the lost, the knowledge of God, lost through Adam, lost through Noah, and God intervenes. The next two sections, chapter 12 through 31, then establishing the covenant people of God. The establishment of a covenant people. Genesis 32 through 50 is the formation of a covenant people. We get the whole middle section of the book. I know it's got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I know they're great stories, but the purpose is to show how God is establishing a covenant that they might know him. That's the purpose of it. It's really about God. And the last part, about Joseph, the biggest story in the book of Genesis I know it has a lot of suffering and there's a lot of things that you and I can draw, but the reality is what it's really about is that even down when it appears they've lost land and in the midst of a famine, God is still going to bless them. And through Joseph, he blesses the whole world. And it's about this formation. Because then the people come down and they live there and we know. It ends on a to be continued, by the way, Genesis 50, because we know that now for 400 years they're going to live there. And Exodus itself, as a book, will start out and said, there rose up a Pharaoh who did not know where these people came from, and they became slave laborers in Egypt. And so they are formed and fashioned, these covenant people, in suffering. A theme that finds itself reflected almost in every book of the, new, of the scriptures, that God forms his people, shapes them, reveals who he is to them through a pathway of suffering. That's the last portion of the book. And so this is God's desire that we know him. Now, I want to put some emphasis for a few moments on the first chapter then. Chapter one, the creation of the world. And I want to say two things because I think God wants 
us to know about him two important things from this first chapter. The first is this, or point number three there. God is creator and sustainer of everything. He is creator and sustainer of everything. Now, if you are back to your little boy and little girl and you're at Mount Sinai or you're at Mount Nebo and you are there in that wandering wilderness and you are wondering what this is all about, what is life all about, what is this delivery from Egypt all about, perhaps it was your parents who said, I wish we had the leeks and the onions, can we go back please? This manna is getting pretty old. What is this about? What Moses tells you, what God wanted you to know, is that this whole idea about all the gods warring was not true. This whole idea that they made the earth out of the destruction of dead gods was not true. This whole idea that mankind was made as slaves to serve the gods was not true. In fact, unthinkably, God provides food for man in this story. God is the creator and there is one God and only one God. The sun and the moon were called deities in every other culture. What's so interesting in this chapter is that they're given names of lesser and greater lights. They're not even given a name, sun and moon, lest it be confused that they be deities of some kind. He says that he is the creator of all things. It's not gods or spirits. That's the first sub-point there. Not gods or spirits. Now, you and I live in a culture, and unless you grew up as a missionary's kid in Central Africa... You also don't believe in multiple gods and spirits animating all the wind and the trees, animating the earthquakes, the God of death having shown up for your friends or knocking on the door of your house even now. You don't believe that. You believe that there is one God and he created the world. You may differ with your friend as to how he created Some of you think it took a few days and some of you think it took multiple, multiple years. But you would believe there's one creator, not gods or spirits. But second, not only not gods or spirits, but more appropriate for us, not natural laws. Not mere natural laws. Now, while there are gods and spirits in the sense that the scriptures even talk about angelic beings as gods... The point is there are spirits, some are evil and some are good, and they do affect the world. The scriptures are quick to say that's not what governs the world, nor is what made the world. God did. And in the same way, there are natural laws. There is gravity. There are germs. There is an outer space. It isn't the lightning bolt of a demon being thrown when the electricity flashes through the air. We understand some of the mechanics and the natural laws that God put into place. But just because those natural laws exist doesn't mean that's why the earth is the way it is. No. Genesis is teaching that not only is he the creator, but he's the sustainer of everything. 
And while there are spirits, and while there are natural laws, those are not the exclusive categories by which to think. Whether you lived 3,500 years ago and you think it's spirits, or you live today and you think the only thing that matters are natural laws. No, it's not. Every circumstance, every event in your life, according to Scripture, is by the hand of God. Now that doesn't undo it all. That he works through the development of a host of natural laws. But it is still his hand. In fact, if an ancient Israelite sat in our service or talked with you and I probably for more than five minutes, he would think we were flat out pagans. Flat out worse than pagans because we don't believe God has to do with anything. We believe all the ocean tides work with God, uh, without God. They just, everything works, electrons and magnetism. And it just works on its own by natural laws. And they would say, you're crazy. Don't you know that God does everything? So they had a distortion. They lost the knowledge that God created. But we have a distortion. And we live in a culture in which we are in danger of losing the knowledge that every event is orchestrated and overseen and sustained by God himself. There was a survey done recently. Wonderful survey, always by high school students so that we can talk about them. But it was a survey in which they were asked, what would happen to the earth and the world if God ceased to exist? The survey went on to recount that many of them said things would wind down. But almost no one said it would cease to exist instantly. And that's more in tune with what the scriptures teach. That it would cease to exist because God sustains all things. And this is called providence. He sustains everything and it's called providence. There are spirits... They affect the world. There are natural laws. They are a part of how everything operates. But that is not the whole story. And I think this is as comforting as it was to the ancient Israelite who had a deep fear of famine, who had a deep fear of darkness. The Egyptians themselves celebrated every morning because they weren't quite sure it was coming back. You and I don't think about that. Because the sun is not burned out yet. We know it's got a long time until it burns out. And, and the earth is going around. And we know that tomorrow, as surely as there is a sun and earth, it's going to happen. But that wasn't what they thought. And disease was a dread. And death itself was an evil monster. And there were monsters in the deep of the ocean. These were the fears that this teaching of Genesis that God created was a great comfort to them. But I suggest it's equally great comfort to you and I that he sustains everything. This same creator sustains everything. There are no accidents in your life. I know we talk about accidents. Grievous things come from accidents. But according to scripture, there are no accidents. 
There is some sense in which there are natural laws, and we certainly can't explain everything. The very book of Job, they're trying to say to Job, the stuff that's happening that's bad in your life is because you've been bad. And God said, that's not necessarily the right conclusion. There are great mysteries that come into place when we think of natural laws and spirits that affect the world and God being in control. And we can't answer every dilemma, but the scriptures are steadfast in saying God sustains everything. You face difficulties. You face them as surely as you walk through two doors and sit in a pew today. You have things taking place that are difficult. God is sustaining every moment of your life. There are questions you may have and there are no answers in some of the questions to be had, but God orchestrates the events of your life. There is a broken and fallen world. There are sins that people commit and he says, I am king over everything and I am yet not the one who invented or authors sin. You say, I don't understand that. You don't have to understand it. I don't understand it. But God says, I want you to live as if it's true. And that's a tremendous comfort that you can face and take comfort from when the thing that presses upon your life and asks you not necessarily to believe that the God Marduk is at play, but perhaps you would believe that it's just chance. Perhaps you would believe it's just a lucky un- or an unlucky break. Or that's just the way things go. Or worse yet, our culture would breathe that it is survival of the fittest. As if there is no need of God. Nobody in here would say, I, like Thomas Jefferson, am a deist. Thomas Jefferson believed that God like a watchmaker, puts together this mechanical piece and all of its immense intricacy gets it going and steps away and says, now run, operate well. I'm going to go take care of some other things. We would never say that because we've been told in churches that deism is false. But we live that way. We live that way. When you have something take place in your life and it's painful, you don't want to go to God with it. It's easier for us to just wash it out and become agnostics. Dare I say, even atheists. God is the sustainer of everything. The second Genesis 1 teaches us. God creates by speaking and naming. He creates by speaking and naming. In the ancient Near East, so when it says, in all those days, and God said, let there be light, etc., etc., etc. In the ancient Near East, the power of a king was measured by his capacity to speak and name the purpose of something. It may already exist. The words in, in, in uh, Genesis 1-3 talk about, over the, your Bibles will say it was the, the deepest, formless and void. There was water over the face of the deep. Those words tohu and bohu is what they are. They mean desolate, but they're also used of a desert. They don't mean non-existent. We keep wanting the Bible to teach us how God made everything and where it all came from. And it doesn't answer those questions. It comes to the Israelite mind. They had no questions about how stuff got made. They didn't care how stuff got made. In fact, 
they would say to you and I, you guys are not religious enough. You want to know how everything's made, but we want to know why was it made? What purpose does it serve? Who is the king that is overseeing everything? Who's the monarch in charge? Who's the one who says what this is for and why? And Genesis is saying, it's me. I am God. I declared, I spoke into the tohu and the bohu of life and the desolate places, the places that had no purpose, and I said, here's what you shall be. In the ancient Near East, to speak and to name things was to create them. To speak and to name things was to show power. That you were the one that had power. To speak and to name things was to give purpose to them. And I think this is immensely important to us. The story in Genesis was important to the, to the Israelites because those first three days are the seven days of creation, the day one and four connected and two and five and three and six. And they talk about time and weather and agricultural things that were of immense importance, the things of chaos that were existent, the things in which in the ancient Near East perspective, darkness kept trying to seep in and cover over and destroy. And God says, no, I spoke into existence these things. There shall be time, tomorrow shall come. There shall be weather and rains and floods and water, as I declare it shall be. I've set them in motion. There shall be food and crops, and the earth will bring forth so that you will be fed. And I will fill each of these realms with, with life, with the functionaries, with the dignitaries that fill them, the birds, the fish, the animals, and people. That's really what the Genesis week is about. Is God declaring and speaking function into the chaotic world. That was the fear of the ancient Israelites. Now you and I don't have that same fear. We don't think about that darkness is creating chaos. Or that the sea monsters may overwhelm the world. We don't think that way. But you know what? We have other fears. If we lived a few years ago, we'd be talking about atomic nuclear detonation. That's no longer on our radar so much, though it's a little bit with Iran and North Korea. But some people wonder, as individuals you know and as families, you can't spend more money than you have, at least not for a very long time. How can our country do it? What's going to happen to us? Or perhaps you are one who thinks, environmentally, we are not doing as well with our planet's care as we should. Some may say, I don't think there's any problem at all. Others say, well, I do think there's a problem. And of course, it's been quite warm in Albany the last few days. There are things that come to threaten us. There are things that come as desolation and chaos into our lives. There are people in this room that are struggling to find work. There are people battling diseases or in their family member diseases. It's hard enough for us to stay married, much less fight off disease and famine, economic failure. There are great difficulties. And it's immensely supportive for us to know that God speaks purpose. That when God created the earth and you and I, he spoke into existence something of purpose. 
Something by his power that had meaning. You were desolate in a sense, but you've been brought into being by God himself. And you have divine purpose. You have a calling and a reason to live life. The earth was called good and so were you. I met with an individual recently who was struggling and struck with the fear. Because they've been abandoned in the past that they would be abandoned in the future. And as we poke and dig and wrestle with that, and what seeps out is this small voiced confession. Because I have no value. I want to tell you something. That assaults all of us at different times and in different places. And what Genesis 1 is telling you is that God made you as a king. He spoke you into existence through Adam. And you have purpose. The human race has purpose. And that's a tremendous comfort. You have great purpose. It is not always visible to us. But we are to move forward with the confidence that it is. That God has purpose for us. I think this carries us into communion. I'm going to ask the worship team if they could come forward. Communion. Communion is also communication. Communion is communication because while this covenant was made, this book was written to reveal, we know that there was another, in our words, thousand pages or so, and we know that at the end of the story, there's another covenant. And there's a person, Jesus, who says, I am the fulfillment of this covenant. We're going to have communion here in just a few moments. We have communion at the two stations. There's two in the back as well. What we need to know, what I want to ask you to consider, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this covenant to reveal who God is. Jesus is the fulfillment of this covenant in Genesis. God's determined purpose to reveal himself beginning with Abraham has found its completion for you and I in Jesus. He's the fulfillment of God's covenant. But it's more than that because Jesus establishes a new covenant. You see, that covenant, we know that Moses' came and David's came and there were other covenants and it failed to change the human heart. But there's something that has happened in the Jesus covenant. The Bible calls it the new covenant. In his blood. In his body. And so this communion is a symbol of body and blood. It is a symbol of God's covenant. Listen, I know we always think about it just to save us. I know that's our language and it's all through the Bible. But it is more than that. It's that you might know him. moment as you come down the aisles and you go to the back the brokenness and the blood symbols because God wants you to know him and they're speaking about him it's they that speak about him he establishes a new covenant and by it he sustains his covenant people and speaks his covenant purpose as you go to the stations and the worship team sings over you I want to ask you to carry this. That God, as much as he speaks through Genesis to the ancient Israelites, and he deposited his spirit in the story so that it's a living word for us, and he speaks to us, he's also giving these. 
these speaking to us with the feast of our eyes, speaking to us as you put them in your mouth, as you come to memorialize and remember, they are just symbols, and yet they are spiritual realities to pursue, to feed upon. They're spiritual realities, and if you would listen, I'm telling you right now, these things also will speak to you of God's purpose for you, to show himself to you, that you might know him. And so I'm going to invite you to come and take communion. There will be prayer ministers at each of the corners. They could come and put their badge on. There are times when you take communion and God speaks to you, you need to pray with somebody else. That's what they're for. This is for those of you who have said, That's, this is what I want. There are many who are a part of our congregation who are searching and seeking. They're investigating Christianity. We have held the position that you can belong with us before you believe like we do. But this is really for those of you, when you've come to the place says, this is what I want. This is, this is for me. I'm willing to give myself in exchange to know him and I will become a follower of Jesus if that's not where you are yet I just ask that you pass on this but if you are saying this is what I want to know him then I want to invite you to come and take communion I'm going to ask you to stand I'm going to pray for us and then I'd like you to go and take communion and I don't know why we doubt you Jesus when you have said over and over and over that you want us to know you and you want to renew what was lost, we ask that you would speak this to our heart in deep places as we come even now to take communion, that we might believe, that we might, like the ancient Israelites of old, be stunned. Has it ever been heard that someone would come and take us with the blackness that is in us and make us new creations? I ask that you would speak to us, your people, this morning.